0: We're going to be looking at a passage that's in the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1. It's going to, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. So let's, let's take a look at what the Lord has to say to us. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? This is the holy word of God, infallible, and errant, and fully sufficient for all of life. And we say, thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that your spirit be in this room this morning. Help me to um, preach from your word truth and accuracy, accuracy, Lord. We pray that you be with each and everybody hearing your word preached this morning, that your heart's Hearts are softened and opened and ready to receive your word, Lord. And we thank you, know that your spirit is here, and we just pray on his power this morning. And it says it. Your name is praying. Amen. In this opening section to the letter of Ephesians, Paul is offering a prayer of thanksgiving to the church of Ephesus. While he is thanking the Lord for several things, he asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having your eyes and hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which He has called you. This morning, this this, we're going to be focusing on this portion of Paul's prayer. Here Paul delivers to the Ephesians, and by extension to Christians of all times, including us, to know that the hope to which the Lord has called us or, as the King James Version puts it, the hope of our calling. That theref- therefore, it's important to take a bit of time to unpack this phrase, the hope of our calling. To accomplish this, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to make sure that we all agree exactly what hope means. Second, we're going to look at the nature of our calling. And then finally, we're going to discuss the practical implications and benefits of having a sure hope in our calling. So again, we'll be looking this morning at what is hope, the nature of our calling, and the benefits of having a sure hope in our calling. To better understand the nature of hope, we need to compare hope to a similar um, concept, that of wishing. In our normal day-to-day talk, Quite often we use these terms interchangeably. We say things like, you see, I'll blow out the birthday candles and make a wish. Then I hope that I get it. We may wish for something new. We may wish for a new toy, for a house, for a job. And we're planning a picnic. We're going to hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow. We're using these terms interchangeably. But actually, when you use hope in this manner, you're really saying wish. Wishing carries with it a large degree of uncertainty. However, there is confidence in hope, and hope is that is not present in wishing. Wishes may never actually happen. Hope is based on what is expected. Both wishing and hoping are used in the Bible. However, they are used differently. In general, in the New Testament, the word hope is a noun. In Ephesians 1.18, the word hope is elpis, it's the same word used in 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. Now the faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Hope here is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Alternatively, wish tends to be used as a verb in Scripture. It expresses a desire. An example is in 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, where it says, I wish that all were as myself, but each of you has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The, the verb, the first wish in this Greek word is thelo, which means to will, to have in mind, to intend, or to desire. So the difference between hoping and wishing is that there's a confidence and hope. So, Paul wants us to be confident in our calling. An important aspect of hope is that it's based on something. The Bible always refers to us placing our hope in something. What we place our hope in is critical. The passage we are looking at today in verse 15 begins with the phrase, for this reason. That would be a hint that you may want to look up and see what that reason is. So we look back in the beginning of Ephesians, and we see what exactly our hope should be based on. This will enable us to better understand the nature of our calling. All we know so far is that Paul's prayer to the Ephesians is that they have confidence in their calling being a fact. We have not yet looked at what is that fact. A little farther up in Ephesians one three through six, we read, "Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will." To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, what is this calling that Paul is referring to? It's nothing less than the complete plan of salvation for all who believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross. In particular, we see in verses 4 and 5 even as he chose us from before the foundation of the world. You should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This indeed is the object of the Ephesians hope as well as for us. Paul further states this a little later in Ephesians in chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 says there is one body and one spirit just as we were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This call is indeed common to all Christians of all ages. It is indeed strong foundation of our hope. Why is this hope critical? Well, consider the pain of hopelessness. Those without Christ are also those without true hope. Yes, they could have placed their hope in some kind of spirit or some kind of pie-in-the-sky wish that things turn out well. But there's no confidence in that. Without true hope, There is no firm foundation. For Christians, the truth of the resurrected Christ, forgiving our sins, is the foundation of our hope. Paul says that without the resurrection, we are worse than fools. The the actual historic fact of the resurrection is where our hope lies. Without a well-founded hope, the failings we see in life, The challenges we see on a daily basis, our disappointments, our fears, will certainly eventually be our undoing. Fear will be the result of all who are not fully aware of the hope they should have in Christ. So we have taken a look at the concept of hope. Now we can example what is meant by our call. What type of call is this? There's actually three types of call that we experience. The first is a vocational call. This is commonly thought of just our job or our career. Your vocation will change during whichever stage of life you're in. Children here, your vocation is going to school. Sorry. A father's vocation is to provide for his family. A mother's vocation is to be a nurturing life giver. a good definition is a vocational call of God is a call of God to his service and vocational sphere of life based on giftedness, desires, affirmations, and human need. Our vocational calling remains the same even as we move through different jobs and careers. This is indeed an extremely important calling. It is one which the, the reformers place great value Whether God calls us to full-time ministry to be a doctor or an engineer or work in the trades or a homemaker or any other non-sinful job, it is indeed a valuable calling from God. However, this is not the calling that Paul wants us to place our hope in. The second kind of call is an external call. An external call is one that comes from other people or from our circumstances. When several people come and tell you that you're either good at writing or singing or teaching or caring or math or science, an external call is starting to be formed. If circumstances align themselves in such a way that you have the opportunity to write for a living or to work as a nurse, this external call may become more concrete. There's an example of an external call. And that's a call offered from a particular church to a potential pastor. Will actually mentioned that earlier, but three years ago, this congregation had a call to Brian Rhodes to be our pastor. And then we had to show the importance of that call a few weeks or a month or so ago. We also had to approve the revision of the terms of that call, namely Brian's salary. So it's an important call. But, again, maybe not what we're putting our hope in. The third type of call is an internal call. An internal call is an understanding within ourselves of what God is calling us to do. When Brian was ordained, he had to confirm that not only did he have an external call to Grace Church, he also had a firm conviction of an internal call to the pastorate as well. So what type of call does God use? Does he call his people to himself with an external call? He certainly does. Calvin calls this the universal call, and this occurs every time the word is preached or we share the gospel. God invites all men without distinction to himself through the preached word. However, we also know that not everyone who hears the gospel responds with saving faith. So I submit to you that the external call of God is not what Paul has in mind when he wants us to place our hope in something. If it was the external call, we would be able to place our hope in the mere fact that you were sitting here this morning listening to the Bible preached. Or we went to some evangelical rally or listened to something on the radio. So how about if it's not just being there, but if we have a, a good response to it? We hear the external proclamation of God's Word and we have a deep feeling or a conviction that we want to sign up to be a Christian. This is not a good place to place our hope either because a deep feeling or conviction of what the Lord would have us do is something that's strictly internal to us. All we know... that. We all know that feelings can and do change. Therefore, it's not a great foundation for hope. The calling that we are to put our hope in is how God brings us to himself. This is what Calvin termed God's special call. This is accompanied by an illumination of the Holy Spirit that leads to true faith in Christ. The special call of God is a calling that referred to in this verse today. As well as discussed in Romans eight thirty. And it's a manner very similar to Ephesians one through four four through five, where Romans eight says, And to those he predestined he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. How does God call us to belief in Christ? To understand God's call works in the believer, we need to look at the what it means for God to draw us to himself. In fact, Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses of sin, and therefore cannot respond to God's call on our own. This is clearly set forth again in Romans eight seven and eight. For the mind of Christ is set on, mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God need a solution to this problem. This is a big problem. We can listen to preaching and not come to Christ. In fact, we can't. But Jesus does give us a solution to this in John six forty four, And he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So it's therefore a necessary condition for the Father to draw people to belief in Christ. So now what do we need to do? We need to figure out what drawing looks like. There's two ways that God could draw people to himself. He could do it synergistically or monogistically. The word synergistic has a prefix sin. We've heard that. It's in synonym. It means together. Erg is like energy and it means work. So to... You talk about synergistic, it's working together. So what does that look like? You can think of a, one person cooking a meal and another person setting the table. They are both working together to have a nice dinner. But then, let's look at it a little bit different. Even though these two people are working together, performing different tasks, they're still working together. Monergistic replaces the prefix sin with mon, or mono, meaning one. Which, therefore, monergistic means that there is only one person working. In other words, the cook also sets the table. Any problems with that, ladies? (laughs) If God were to draw us synergistically, he would be seeking to woo us or entice us to Christ we would still be responsible for our positive response to the gospel. Many of you know we have a little, or actually a big puppy at home. He's getting bigger. And it's much like this idea of wooing or enticing is like teaching a puppy to come when you're holding a treat. And that may work for a while, right? However, there'll be a day when you're attempting to train this puppy and he decided and even though you want him to come to you he would much rather run around the backyard than come get that little piece of treat you have so now if you think about that in the nat- in the part of human nature if it can prompt us to choose christ then we would also have the ability to unchoose christ it's whatever we want to do so this is not a A situation where we can place our hope or confidence in. To understand this a little further, we can look at the idea of human free will. And I always love what R.C. Sproul talked about when he was um, discussing what Jonathan Edwards taught about human free will. It's very simple. It's simply the fact that people will always do what they want to do at any given moment. The choice to a pew you are sitting in right now, when you walked into this room, you made a choice. You decided whether you wanted to sit in the front or the back, in the middle of the row, out by the aisle, under the air conditioning vent, far away from the air conditioning vent. You have your choice. Now let's change this around a little bit and say that you come in a little late on Easter morning. There's one seat left right in the center of the low row with the air conditioner blasting right down on it. You have to take that seat, right? It's the only one left. Well, no, you actually still have a choice. What could you do? You could stand by the side. You can go in the fellowship hall and just listen to the audio of the sermon. Or frankly, you could just leave. Say, there's no place to sit, I'm out of here. But so some people will hold that that is a valid, reason, a valid description of free will as long as you are free to choose. And they say it does not hold if you are under compulsion. However, I submit that even under compulsion, you will still do what we desire to at the most at that time. Probably not the younger ones, but some of your older ones out here. Um, there's a comic from days gone by named Jack Benny. If you ever heard of Jack Benny, one thing about him is he was extremely cheap. I mean, he would make Lincoln cry on a penny. So he's known and he had a routine that was one of his more famous routines, that a mugger came up to him, pointed a gun at him, and says, Your money or your life. Then there's silence for quite a while. And so the mugger's there and says, Well, he says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. He was under compulsion, and he had a choice to make. The mugger gave him a choice, even though he was under compulsion, your money or your life, and he had to think about it. So if we always do what we want to the most at any given time, how does God draw us? To understand whether God draws us synergistically or monergistically to Christ, let's look a little bit closer at this word draw. It's used in John 6:44 and it's also used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's used in John 21:10 through 11 where it says Jesus said to them, "Bring some fish that we that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn used again in Acts 21.30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The word translated hauled, talking about the bringing in the net full of fish, or dragged, when Paul was seized and dragged into the marketplace, are the same word as used in John 6.44. Neither of these uses suggest a cooperation between the other parties involved. So God is the only actor in bringing us to Christ. But how does he do that and not violate our free will? In our fallenness, we will never seek Christ. The answer is told to us by Christ himself in his exchange with Nicodemus. In John 3.3 we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless... Okay, another necessary condition here. One is born again, he cannot... Christ did not say will not. He says he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us that in our fallen state, we have no desire to follow an external call to place our faith in, in Jesus. Yet, He Himself also says that we must come to Him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this, come to me, implies a willingness. So there's a willingness, but it said earlier that we don't want to. The only way this can happen is for the Holy Spirit to regenerate our wills so that we desire to follow Christ. So this is what it means to be born again or to have your spirit regenerated. It means that the Holy Spirit, by His grace, changes our heart so that our will is changed and our de- we now desire to follow Christ. This regeneration allows us to understand the things of God as spoken of in the Bible. So in fact, we, while we may be able to resist God's grace, we will not resist it to the end. God is the only one who changes heart and he has promised that he will change the hearts of all whom he has predestined unto salvation. This means that his call is both irresistible, which means unable to be ultimately resisted, and it's effectual. It's guaranteed to success in meeting its intended goal. Therefore, it is indeed a good foundation of our hope. We have seen that our calling is reliable and it can be trusted in due to the fact that it's grounded in God's electing grace from all eternity. So we know our call is something that can be hoped in. But what are the benefits of hoping in this calling? Let's go back to our text to Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. And we read, Have in your eyes and hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then going on, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? We see here that God's call is both preserving and powerful. Let's first look at this idea of riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is this inheritance? Recall, we read earlier that. God predestined us to adoption. So I ask, what is the difference between a foster child and an adopted child? The difference is certainty of what the future holds. We can be assured that our position in Christ, because we have been adopted into the family of God, this is true no matter what we do. We cannot lose this status. How do we know that? Well, actually, the three persons of the Trinity confirm it. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we read, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours, the Father, they were. And you gave them to me, the Son. And they have kept your word. Now they know, which is a work of the Spirit... That everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, the Father, have given me, the Son. That they are yours. All, are your, all mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in this world, but they are in the world. And then suddenly the Spirit continues to work within us. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which has been given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one, modeling the Trinity." Likewise, our circumstances are not an indication if we have or have lost salvation. We read in John ten twenty-seven 27-29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Never forget, the Father has known his children from the beginning and has promised that none will perish. We can see how this works itself out in the, the Reformed acrostic tulip. This was a memory tool that was solidified in the Synod of Dort, 1618 19, roughly 100 years after Calvin, so Calvin did not do tulip. People who um, followed him did, and wanted it as a good memory tool for what the basis of reformed theology is. We're just going to look at the P. The P stands for perseverance of the saints. The thing is, I tend to agree with RC Sproul again when he changes this just a touch and change it from perseverance of the saints to preservation of the saints. So along with our initial justification Maintaining our position in the family of God is a monogistic work of God. Remember, as we just read, Jesus will not lose one that the Father has given him. The Holy Spirit also promises to finish his, the work he started in Philippians 1 6. And always remember, if we did not choose God, we cannot unchoose God. An analogy I love is about preserving love of God, if any of you have taken a toddler to cross the street and you come up to the curb near the the traffic going by, what do you do? You just tell the little guy, here, hold my finger and we'll be okay? Is that how you hold his hand? Trusting on him to hold on? No. Rather, what you do is you wrap your hand around his wrist. He thinks he's holding on. But really, who's doing the holding? We're doing the holding. This is how God holds on to us. We are kept safe through his power, not ours. So if you're trusting God's power, what is this power? I mentioned before, it's a powerful call. Our text in Ephesians, a little farther down in verses 19 and 20 read, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, Who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? The first proof that we can have confidence in our call is the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we know that our sins, past, present, and future, have been atoned for and are forgiven. We also know through the ascension of Christ, Christ's death that death is conquered and that we have his righteousness imputed to us. We see that Jesus has completed the work of atonement and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So it's true that being seated at the right hand of God is indeed a place of honor in which Christ is completely worthy. However, our text points out another fact about being at God's right hand. It is the position of power. Christ exhibits all of God's power to protect, protection of his people and sustaining creation. We continue reading in our passage. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This is the source of the preserving power of Christ for us. When when things get hard or scary or uncertain, remember all things work together for the good to those who are called of God. So what have we seen this morning? We have seen first that hope is more than simply desiring something. It is understanding that we place our hope, um, that we understand that it can and will happen. There is a confidence in hope. The object of our hope is indeed trustworthy. It is God who called us and drew us to Christ. He has promised that he will never lose even one of those he has given to the Son. The object of our hope is powerful. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the hand of power. Christ not only sustains all of creation, he sustains and keeps each one of us. The trustworthiness and power of God, God's call on each one of us, is the source of comfort and encouraging as we pass through the hills and the valleys of this life in a falling world. So where do we go from here? First, if you have not felt a confidence in your eternal security... It may be that while you have placed yourself under the external call of God by attending church, the Lord may be prompting you this morning to yield to His special call on your life. If you have never repented of your sins and placed your hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus to forgive your sins, today may be the day God is calling you to do just that. If you know that you are a follower of Christ and let yet your hope is lacking this morning. There are things you can do to strengthen your hope. We read earlier that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. If we desire sustaining hope, we need to be growing in wisdom and knowledge of God. How do we do this? By availing ourselves of the means of grace that God has given us. Namely, the Word, both preached and read, the sacraments, as well as prayer and the fellowship with other believers. If we desire to live a strong hope, we need to be a Bible-reading, praying, and biblically-worshipping people. Remember, that it is only the Holy Spirit who can change our hearts. We should all be praying daily that the Spirit to continually remind us of the promises of God, as told to us in His Word, and to soften our hearts to actually believe those promises. Jesus has promised that he will not lose a single person who is given to him by the Father. This is indeed a comfort to us by the Spirit and the hope of our calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your work in um, election and bringing us to yourself. We thank you for the power you have to hold all you brought to Christ and never to release us. We thank you that we don't have to rely on how well we... Live this life that you will never let us go. We need to be turning to you daily, seeking repentance and seeking your forgiveness and moving forward in your light, Lord. And we thank you for the knowledge that you will always be with us in that. Go with us now, Lord, as we go into the world and have us to rely strongly on the hope of our calling.